0: One of the great joys of coming, coming to New Horizon is to reconnect with, with friends, old friends, some from school, some from university, like my beer buddy, Fanta, Bishop Ken Clark. I, I had, had coffee with him the other day. And uh, apparently he's telling the story around Ireland of the very first sermon I preached in the United States of America. Um, you realize that in the United States... Your butt is your posterior. You know that. It's your bottom. Okay? According to Fanta, and he's telling this story, this is, this is a true story, that yours truly went into Philadelphia, and he preached his favorite, his favorite sermon on But Naaman would not wash in the River Jordan. You know that famous story where Naaman thought all the other rivers were much more appropriate and better. So I announced, apparently, to this congregation that I was going to preach on Naaman's butt. I told them, of course, as the main thrust of the sermon, um, that we cannot, nor could he see his butt, and was somewhat shocked that when I had an altar call, people would not respond when I invited them on the basis of what they were going to do with their butt. But I want to tell you, folks, this is completely apocryphal. It is an urban myth. I... I do hope this evening that I will be slightly more culturally sensitive. You know where I'm coming from. I may be Trevor W.J. Morrow. W.J., by the way, stands for Willie John. Both my grandfathers were Willie John, and so I was called after them, and they were worshipful masters of their respective orange lodges. That's my background, and yet having come from lambeg, and in the sound of drums, I have exercised my entire ministry in the Irish Republic. I I remember when I chose to go there in the first place, some people in Lisbon would come to my mother and say to her, why is he burying himself down there? (laughs) Or one woman, you know, in Market Square in Lisbon came up to her and said, I thought your Trevor could have done better. Meaning that he should have got some real church with a real manse and a real spire. Those are the expectations of people. And I, I, I realize, having ministered in the Irish Republic, I have been given this responsibility, which I want to tell you is a little bit un, uncomfortable for me to speak on how we can remember rightly as the people of Ireland in this year of 2016 as we commemorate the Battle of the Somme and the 1916 Easter Rising. Well, we are almost drunk, are we not, from, from images on our television screens of terrorist explosions that are taking place throughout the world whether caused by Taliban or ISIS or Boko Haram, whether it's in Afghanistan or, or Iraq or Sudan or Syria, or as the media only seem to focus upon if it's happening in Nice or Brussels or Paris, and almost certainly will happen sometime soon in London, What happens is we we watch these things, we are horrified, and then onto our screen comes the experts, uh, those on Sky News or on the BBC who seek to make comment and to interpret why these various things are happening. There was a a wonderful article written in the Irish Times just about 10 days ago by Fintan O'Toole, in which he said, do you know, if anybody is over the age of 40 on this island, they are greater experts on terrorism than any of those folks who are brought onto our TV screens. You see, folks, if you're over 40, you've lived through this. We, we know, do we not, that those who have committed those monstrous acts are not monsters. They are our neighbors. They farmed with us. With us. We know them. We recognize them. They are made in the divine image. And we can still remember those of us over 40, McGurk's Bar, the Kingsmill Massacre, Bloody Sunday, Bloody Friday, the Enniskillen bombings, the Oma bombings, and of course, the greatest atrocity of all during the Troubles took place in Dublin in May 1974. It's painful to remember, is it not? After the Omaha bombing, Bono of U2 wrote what many have considered to be his most agnostic piece of work. It's called Peace on Earth. Part of what he wrote was on a reflection because of the, what the mother of, of James Barker said when she saw her son in the coffin. She said, I never realized how green his eyes were. And so Bono wrote, heaven on earth, we need it now. I'm sick of all of this. Hanging around, sick of sorrow, sick of pain. Sick of hearing again and again there's going to be peace on earth. Jesus, could you take the time to throw a drowning man a line? Peace on earth. Tell the ones who hear no sound whose sons are lying in the ground. Peace on earth. No whos or whys, no cries like a mother's cries for peace on earth. She never got to say goodbye, to see the color in his eyes. Now he's in the dirt. That's peace on earth. Well, you might say, well, we've come a long way, and we have. Bertie Ahern, former Taoiseach in the Republic. Some of you remember he addressed the Congress in the United States, and he said, After so many decades of conflict, I am so proud, Madam Speaker, to be the first Irish leader to inform the United States Congress, Ireland is at peace, resulting in hoops and hollers and screams and standing applauses. You know, that is hyperbole. Yep, there is a cessation of violence And as we came to New Horizon, we didn't see army on the streets and we are not subject to security checks on our shops and roadways. But all of us know, whatever age we are, that the ghettos remain, there is simmering tension, sectarianism is part and parcel of our lives. Most people who come to New Horizon, and I don't mean to be unkind, are from middle class backgrounds. They almost live in a bubble as Christians who go to church, who work, who have their holidays, at times utterly removed from the realities of what is taking place in some sections of our community. Let me tell you this evening that when Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven, what he was asking us to pray for was for shalom. For the peace of God, of justice with peace. You see, in the Hebrew and Greek, both in the Old and New Testaments, the word for earth and the word for land, they're exactly the same. He's asking us to pray that the rule of God, the kingdom of God, the shalom of God, the peace of God will be established on this land, in this place, as it is in, in heaven. Land is really important in the scriptures. From the very beginning, not just because of the promise to Abraham. I'm working at the moment with Chris Wright, helping to facilitate under the Lausanne umbrella uh, reconciliation between uh, Palestinian Christians and Messianic Jews. Well, you can understand, working in that situation, the importance of land. For one group, uh, that is for the Jews who suffered through the Holocaust, you know, 1947 was, of course, a day of liberation. They had a state, a homeland. But for the Palestinians, including tens of thousands of Christians, it is Nakba, was a catastrophe. How do you cope with a kingdom on the land where you are? That's the reality of the situation in Ireland today. Well, the coming of Jesus... Is about his coming to make peace, to be reconciled with his enemies. Because God created us for himself, to love and to be loved. And we have shunned him, we have betrayed him, we have provoked him, we have hurt him beyond anything we can imagine. And the Christian story is about his plan, the meta narrative, the big picture to make peace with us, to be reconciled with his enemies. I want you to turn to the Scriptures just now, if you have a Bible, and to Philippians chapter 2. What we have here is the model, the model of the things that make for peace I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2 from verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness This is God's holy and his powerful word. Well, there I read to you the model for peacemaking. And it is quite clear from the Apostle Paul. He is so direct. We are to have the mind of Christ. We are to have the attitude of Christ, the demeanor of Christ. We are to think like Christ. That is our calling as those who are citizens of the kingdom. And here are the three things that we are to see in terms of how Christ establishes peace with his enemies. The first is, and I'm sorry to use a Greek word, it sounds so pretentious, but there is no English word I know that captures what we find described in this passage. So the word I'm going to use, and I hope you can remember it, is kenosis. It's a really important word to remember it's difficult to translate. It's where Paul talks about Jesus not considering equality with God a thing to be held on to, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He set aside somehow the rights and privileges and status of his deity in order that he might completely identify with us in terms of our Humanity, the only way I can describe it is that, you know that children's story of the prince and the pauper, where, it, where in order for the prince to understand and identify with the pain of his subjects, he, he sets aside, he sets aside the privileges of a status as a member of royalty and he lives as a beggar. Well, here it is: Jesus, very God of very God. The one who, by whom all things have been brought into existence. He sets aside all his rights, the privileges of his deity, so that he can enter into the experience and pain of our broken humanity. He can feel as we feel in our brokenness and suffering. You see, there is no special, unique humanity created in the womb of Mary. It's our humanity. It's bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. It was St. Athanasius, the great early father, who said the unassumed is the unhealed. It had to be our humanity that he took to himself if he was to heal it. Have you heard this like your landlord becoming your lodger, like your managing director up before you for an interview. Like Beethoven queuing up for a ticket for his own concert. Like a headmaster getting the cane. Like a good architect living in the slum built by a rival. Like Picasso painting by numbers. God lived among us, veiled in flesh. The Godhead see hail the incarnate deity. I'm describing here total cultural and social identification. Total involvement and participation in the life of those from whom he is alienated without ever ceasing to be who he is. Kenosis, you see. That's the first thing. The second is servant He takes the form of a servant. This is quite extraordinary. He, He chooses not only to live among us, but he chooses to serve those who are his enemies, those who have provoked his moral outrage, who have broken his heart. He comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for these people. The the word in Greek really means a table waiter, diakonos, a table slave, the person, you know, who would come and offer you water and make sure you had ice and, and, you know, give you all the specials and eventually take the menu and bring you the food and all of that. It just comes focusing entirely and completely upon you and upon your needs, Of course, when we think of Christ as a servant, what comes to mind is this fabulous picture and story of Jesus taking the basin and the towel, and to the shock and horror of the disciples, he is washing, washing their feet as a slave. For Rabbi, for Messiah, for the God of heaven, this is outrageous. But folks, it is even much bigger than this. It is the entire scope of his ministry. I hope we've learned that from Scott in the morning. This is the mark of the kingdom. It is the practice of servanthood. So that when he sees people who are hungry, he, he feeds them. When there is a natural disaster or crisis, when the storm is raging and the wind is howling, he just says, peace, be still. He stills the storm. When, when people are blind or deaf, or unable to walk, he brings this extraordinary level of phys- physical healing. And when there is death, he raises people from the dead. It is servanthood. From heaven he came, helpless babe entered our world, his glory veiled, not to be served, but to serve. This is our God. The servant king. And the third aspect of this model of how he makes peace is perhaps the most difficult of all sacrifice. Kenosis, servanthood, sacrifice. He lays down his life for his enemies. You see, the reason, practically speaking, Jesus was put to death was he was not PC, he was not politically correct in terms of second century Judaism. Second Temple Judaism, you see, had the expectations that Jesus would come as Messiah, rather that Messiah would come riding on a white horse in order to destroy the forces of occupation, and through the exercise of naked power, he would establish the rule of God from Jerusalem. Well, of course, that was not politically correct, so the result was a conspiracy, a religio-political conspiracy where the Herodians, the Sanhedrin, and the Roman governor, they all got together and they planned to put this one to death. And you know he could have called on the host of heaven to assist him, but instead he chooses to die. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. This was his mission, sacrifice for his enemies. Uh, there was a conference in Maudlin College in Oxford when C.S. Lewis was there. It was a conference on, on, on world religions and someone just came up to him in the common room and says, Jack, what do you think is unique about the Christian faith? And his answer was in Woodward, grace. Because God did not come for the nice and the good and those who are faithful and obedient, he came for the awkward and the difficult and the thran, isn't that a great Ulster Scots word, the thran, the rebellious, the sinful. That's grace, you see. This is the very heart of peacemaking. This is the most difficult thing for us to grasp. How is it possible for God to maintain the principles of justice, of what is right and wrong, and still make peace with those who are his enemies, with those who caused him such pain. That is the challenge. It is enormously difficult. Some people think, you know, that in terms of dealing with with those who have caused us such hurt, we just put the past behind us and get on with it. No, no, that is not the Jesus way. God is angry. Of course, it is not human peak with all its brokenness. And, and, and distortion. But he is angry, he's outraged, he's hurt. But he chooses, instead of dumping his pain on us, he chooses to take it to himself. And instead of insisting that we get what we deserve according to every principle of justice, he chooses to embrace it and take it And endure it himself. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Is this this natural? Or reasonable? No, of course not. It requires for Jesus obedience. Who would choose to do this? It is the obedience of love. Jesus didn't die for us because it was fun. He hung there for love because it had to be done. That is why he wrestled in Gethsemane, almost going insane Sweating drops of blood, crying out to the Father, if it is possible, take this from me. Kenosis, servanthood and sacrifice, that's the Jesus way. Brothers and sisters, fasten your safety belts. This application is so difficult. Here are the things that make for peace. You are to have the mind of Christ. The same attitude. You are to be made captive to the mind of Christ if you are a citizen of the kingdom. What is required? Well, kenosis, that's what's required. We, whoever we are, wherever we're from, without denying who we are culturally or socially or politically or religiously we need to set aside those things which are ours by right and inheritance in order that we might identify with those from whom we are alienated you don't deny who you are but you take on the form of those who are separated from you Let me tell you how I came to be ministering in the Irish Republic. How kenosis started in my life. uh, I was on Hamilton Road in Bangor as an assistant minister, and the troubles were pretty bad at the time. I was preaching. This is 35 years ago. I was preaching a series on Jonah the bigoted prophet. You know the story of Jonah and the whale and so on. Well, he, he was called... By God to go and preach to those people he did not like. They were the traditional enemies of God, the Assyrians. He was to go to their capital, Nineveh, and to bring to them the word of God. And Jonah reckoned that if he brought them the message of repentance, they could respond with dire consequences for the nation that he loved. So he had a choice either to be a patriot or a prophet. And he chose to be a patriot. And he disobeyed God. There was no way he was going to these wretched Assyrians. Uh, and so he headed off in the wrong direction to Tarshish. And he brought upon himself and everybody with him the judgment of God. Now, I want to tell you, I was bold enough. Assistant ministers do this sort of thing. They get away with blue murder. I applied this uh, to evangelical Christianity in the north of Ireland with regard to those who, from whom we have been alienated for generations. We have been called of God on this island to communicate God's truth to those from whom we have been separated for generations. That's what I said. And we have chosen to be patriots rather than prophets. We have a greater loyalty, that's what I said, to the United Kingdom than to the kingdom of God. Well, you can imagine I was flavor of the month And when I preach the penultimate address, that a greater as Jonah is here, and recognizing that Jesus came in kenosis, and the words I use are similar to that I've used this evening, that without ceasing to be God, he set aside his rights and privileges, and therefore for us and this island that is torn apart and divided. We who are the people of the word, who are citizens of the kingdom, must be willing to set aside our rights and privileges and loyalty to Her Majesty the Queen. The privileges, without ceasing to be unionists, in order that we can identify with those who are separated from us. Well, it was too much for a guy in the choir underneath me. He shouts, rubbish! at the top of his voice, followed by a Scotsman, who was also, I think, a tenor, who said to him, shut your mouth, he said, the man is preaching the truth. <laughs> well, well I, well, I must tell you, one of the best parts of the story is, is the following Sunday, in Hamilton Road at that time, there was still a robed choir, and you would go in and pray with the choir before the evening service. And I went in, a gentleman who had shouted rubbish came over to me, knowing that I was coming to my final sermon on Jonah, and he said to me, Well, Trevor, I'm glad to see you're coming to the end of the fish course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You see, Karis, my wife, who's Welsh and a psychotherapist now, And extremely discerning. She said to me. You know Trevor you are Jonah. You are dumping on this church. Ministers do this. You are dumping on this church. All your own prejudice and struggles. In terms of your upbringing. Which I was. So the word of the Lord came. To moi. And said arise. And go to Nineveh. And I went. And I have been there for my entire life. Ministry. And so Kenosis began almost within weeks. I went into the local school, um, Colossae Kiran, uh, where a number of our children were, worship, were, were attending. And this priest, Father Dermot O'Gorman from the Sacred Heart Order, came over to me, gave me a cup of coffee, and proceeded to give me what could only be described as a classic evangelical testimony of how he was converted one Good Friday. I was overwhelmed with joy at this. I responded so positively to him that two days later he came to my door and he said, Look, Trevor, I share something with you I even could not share with many of my fellow priests. Could we not meet together? Every Monday at four o'clock, Dermot and I would meet. And we'd pray and we'd share the scriptures and we'd study together. And he was my Barnabas, sent by God to encourage me and to introduce me into a world that I have to tell you coming from the north, I knew practically nothing about. Shortly after I was there, I was invited to preach in the pro-cathedral, the Catholic pro-cathedral in Dublin. It's odd, is it not, that in a city that is 95, 96% Roman Catholic, there are two Protestant cathedrals, but there's no Roman Catholic cathedral. They couldn't have one. They were not allowed to have one. They have a pro-cathedral. So I'm invited to preach to the Catholic Youth Council at an evening rally. Place is packed. And, And I was bold enough to preach on, by grace, are you saved through faith? And that not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It was not polemical. It was not one of those addresses, we are right, you are wrong, stuff. I was just celebrating the amazing grace of God, of what God had done for us in Jesus Christ. I, I shall never forget the response. It's the only place I've ever preached the gospel where as soon as I finished, there must have been five or six hundred people who stood to their feet and cheered and clapped. I never had a standing ovation for preaching the gospel. Two years ago, shortly before I left Lucan, I went up into St. Mary's Catholic Church to, uh, uh, well, it was... I went into the sacristy because I was going to bring greetings from our own church to to our friends in the Catholic Church before Mass. We do that. We've done that for years. A new priest had arrived. I went into the sacristy and I said, I'm I'm Trevor Morrow, Lucan Presbyterian. And he said to me, Oh, Trevor, I know who you are. (laughs) And I said to him, Because he said, I'm Tom. I said, Tom, how do you know me? He said, do you remember preaching in the pro-cathedral 30 years ago? Oh, yes, I said, Tom, I remember. And what he said was this. You know, Trevor, I responded to Christ that night. Is that not extraordinary? That the new priest in Lucan was converted through me. And my ministry in the Catholic cathedral, where I want to tell you, because I went, I got a lot of abuse for it. What was I doing in that place? Well, I, folks, I was preaching the gospel. If we are to engage in kenosis here in the north or in north-south or however you want to describe it, You need to know those from whom you have been separated for generations, culturally, politically, and socially. You need to know their history. I knew nothing about the history of the Irish Republic. I knew something about the north of Ireland because I understood my history within a British context in terms of Ireland. How Within the Republic of Ireland, they tell their story, they tell their narrative is quite different. They understand the British presence in the light of what was going on within the Irish context. For, for us to engage in kenosis, it is necessary for us to meet with our neighbors, to interact with those who tell a different story from us, so that we can participate in kenosis without ceasing to deny who we are. I, I found something remarkable about the Irish language, for example. I, I was on an aeroplane flying from, from Toronto to Dublin. And after a while, you know, you begin to chat to the person beside you. I was on my own, and, and he asked me what I was and what I did. And I said, I'm a Presbyterian minister. This guy got so excited. He was the headmaster of an Irish-speaking school in Ballina. And he began to tell me this story that I knew nothing about in terms of my upbringing. That when the Irish Catholic bishops, with the aid of Daniel O'Connell decided to insist that all education for Irish people be in English. Those in the Gael Talk, those who were Irish-speaking, were going to suffer injustice. The amazing response was, he said, that it was the Presbyterian General Assembly who decided because 30% of ministers who had come from Scotland were fluent Gaelic speakers, and Scottish Gaelic and Irish Gaelic are almost the same. But they began to set up all these schools... in in the early 19th century, all throughout Ireland. And the only requirement they made, because they were not present themselves, was that these Roman Catholics who were being educated in Irish have the scriptures in Irish as their basic resource. That's the only requirement they made. They preserved, you see. The Irish language, that is part of our history. I also did not know that until the middle of the 19th century you could not be ordained a Presbyterian minister unless you had your Hebrew, your Greek, and your Irish. You could not be ordained unless you were fluent in the Irish language. Such was kenosis, such was the sense of identification in the history of mission on this island. What we are talking about, folks, is not something novel or strange. It's what we do to any missionary who's going anywhere in the world. It's called cross-cultural ministry. We don't ask them to bring a British baggage with them if they're going to India or to Maca or to Zimbabwe. They go and identify with the people. I, I think it's great. Last, last year, of course, we celebrated Hudson Taylor as it's going to, the, to China, and particularly to the China Inland Mission. What was unique about Hudson Taylor was, on, unlike many missionaries who went with a British package, he decided to go inland. And even though he came from Barnsley, he developed his ponytail and the Chinese dress. He learned the language. He ate their food. It was utter cultural identification and involvement, you see. It is kenosis. The Apostle Paul did it. He was a Jewish rabbi who was ministering to the Gentiles. Here's something interesting that he says. To, to the Jews, I became a Jew. And you would have expected him to say, To the Gentiles, I became a Gentile. But that's not what he says. He says, To the weak, I became weak, because as a Jew, he couldn't become a Gentile. He had to be who he is, but he took on the form. He engaged in kenosis. He learned their language, their culture. He identified with them. What I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, is you do not cease to be a unionist. You don't cease to be British. You don't cease to be loyal to Her Majesty the Queen. That's who you are. It is part of your identity. But in kenosis, you set aside some of those privileges and rights so that you can completely identify with those to whom you need to be reconciled, even your enemies. Let me just assure you, in case you think I've gone completely potty going to the Republic of Ireland, up until Brexit, I've been carrying a British passport But Ian Paisley Jr. tells me that I can get an Irish one now. (laughs) Just as an aside about Brexit, what is wrong with you people? Do you know the consequences for me? My pension is in sterling. I'm in real trouble here, folks. But I want to tell you, I haven't lost my identity completely. Because even though I've been in Leinster all these years when Ulster play Leinster at Rugby High still stand up for the Ulster men let me tell you that folks we're talking here about kenosis and secondly it's servanthood of course when Paul applies it it's specifically to the life of the church and the fellowship where servanthood is required but in order to make peace it is much wider than that Ireland, as you know, is changing at a rapid pace. The process of secularization is enormous. Uh, And we who were once in positions of power in terms of the authority that the church could exercise, all of that is gone. This is post-Christendom. And the response of many, of course, is to circle the wagons and somehow defensively to seek to preserve this Christian subculture at all costs, legally, politically, Socially, let me show you a different way. It's the way of servanthood. We are in Babylon, I think that's fair to say. We are in exile. Babylon, of course, is used consistently in the scriptures as a city of man over and against the city of God. We need to hear again the words of Jeremiah, so relevant for our time. We are to be culturally involved as servants. We are to build our homes and plant gardens. We are to seek the peace and prosperity of the city of Babylon. We are to pray to the Lord for it. We are to become servants in this place. We are to be known primarily not those who seek justice for ourselves, but justice for others. It doesn't mean it excludes justice for ourselves, but it's a whole demeanor, you see. It's an attitude of serving. Outside my window, because I, I am an extrovert and I don't mind sitting watching all these people moving up and down when I'm studying. On a regular basis, there are, there are those of the Keep Lucan Tidy, I'm still living in Lucan, Keep Lucan Tidy Brigade who arrive with all their yellow you know, costumes and, 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 and security gear and their shovels and, and their plants. And, and they are spending all this time serving us just to bless Luke and that's what we're called to do we're volunteers for cleanups we run food banks we're to teach English to migrants but I, I want to broaden that you see whatever discipline you come from you may be in medicine or education or business or, or, on, or, or in agriculture on a farm your, your role is the vocation of God to serve, to serve Babylon for the prosperity of the people because if Babylon prospers, you will prosper and people will see your good deeds and glorify God. I, I had a wonderful lunch with Marcus Honeyset honey before he left today and, and you know, if you know Marcus, it, it, leadership is his thing. That's what he specializes in and he said to me something really quite remarkable he said if I had someone who could mentor me or could be a model for leadership as to what I ought to be the person I'd love to spend an hour with is her majesty the queen she is the servant queen is she not quite extraordinary as a follower of Christ, one of the greatest evangelists we have. And as she gets older, she becomes more bold. Have you noticed that? Every Christmas, it is so overt, it is so clear. This is the passion of her life, to serve the king as a servant queen when she came to Ireland it was a seminal moment. Can you imagine a British monarch landing in Ireland after these hundreds of years of alienation? And when she arrived, everything about her just displayed her role and status. I know it was clearly choreographed and ordered, and she would have material provided for her by civil servants, but she tried as the monarch to engage in kenosis. She wore green. She learned to speak some Irish. She was advised for her speeches with regard to the Irish narrative so that she could identify with it. And then that extraordinary moment where, where with humility and grace, the very demeanor of her body, she came and she came before the memorial for those who had been shot by the British army in the Easter Rising and she bowed her head do you remember that moment? folks this is this is servanthood it's kenosis let me say this to you because I know you are loyal unionists, most of you. If Her Majesty, the Queen, as a follower of Christ, can do this, so can you. Kenosis, servanthood, and sacrifice. Well, let me tell you. This is the most difficult of all. How can we be at peace with people who have hurt us? I'm not just talking through the troubles. I'm talking about people who have abused us physically, emotionally, sexually, who have robbed from us, who have maimed us. How, how can we be at peace with such people without moral compromise? How are we to cope with our past? The folks in Stormont don't know. How can we react as followers of Christ with this meta-narrative to acts of violence that we have inherited? Well, we could draw a line in the sand and on the basis that we will never know the truth about who is responsible for what, we could encourage a form of amnesia and live in the hope that time will help us to forget. Or we could demand to know the truth, to see justice done through investigation, through judicial inquiry, through some sort of truth commission. This could be a bruising, dissatisfying pursuit of naked justice, which deep down we know will never answer our questions or satisfy our need to honor those who've been taken from us. You see, human justice is frail and fallible is there another way in which we do not forget we do not trivialize the injustice of what has been done and yet allows us to seek peace for ourselves and our community there is brothers and sisters it's the Jesus way it is only practice I think when there are three things present one is deep, deep pain when there is justifiable anger and there is moral outrage. Pain, anger, outrage. That's the context. When something happens to us, when we feel all of those things and yet something happened to us when we begin to realize that nothing nothing can undo what has been done not justice or revenge or imprisonment or execution nothing can reverse the wrong done something happens to us I, I want to call it tonight the miracle of mercy when we talk about forgiveness and the practice of forgiveness it is a guilt trip for many people because they are still carrying they're still carrying so many unimaginable pains and hurts in their heart that they cannot even conceive of reaching out to that person who has hurt them i don't want to do that to you tonight as a pastor i know this can take years and years and years to come about but when it comes Healing comes for you too It's the miracle Of mercy Let me take it out of the troubles And bring it into A particular pastoral situation I was dealing with This, this girl We'll call her Bridget Her husband Had an affair They were both Christians, both believers, she was so mad. I can't tell you how angry she was. She was in public throwing things at him. I was there when it happened. The language deteriorated. They were utterly alienated, not just for weeks and months, but for years. And and as a pastor, I was seeking to maintain relationships with both parties, the one who had been offended and the offender. And we had to wait and we had to pray and we prayed and years later, the miracle took place, the softening of her heart, the feeling of compassion. And she began to reach out. And what happened? She chose in obedience to have the mind of Christ And to take to herself the consequences of what her adversary deserved. Instead of dumping it on him, instead of insisting that he suffer the repercussions of what this guy had done, she chose to take it to herself. We call that a preemptive strike. That's preemptive grace. You see, God took the initiative while we were yet sinners Christ died for us that is what we are called to do of course there is no reconciliation without repentance the parties cannot be restored unless there is genuine sorrow and identification with that which you have done but it begins to bring healing and the implications folks when that happens on a national scale, then we see the coming of the kingdom. Then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What we do not see so clearly on that passage is that when the kingdom comes, we are going to rule with Christ. We will reign with him. That's what it means for us to carry the imago dei, the image of God. We know from the ancient Eastern documents that were written at the time of the book of Genesis that the imago dei was used normally with regard to the monarch who carried in themselves the image of the deity that they claimed to represent. And the writer of Genesis took this in an extraordinary way and he applied it to men and women equally They became monarchs, the representatives of God, the vassals of God on earth so that they could fulfill what we call the cultural mandate, to bring it under subjection, to exercise dominion, to be fruitful and to multiply. What we will see, therefore, on this land is the coming of the rule of Christ Justice will be done and seen to be done. Every knee will bow. The feelings of the victims, those who have been hurting for all these years, they will be vindicated. But this is not the end. With justice will come peace. For every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord every tongue. You see, St. Babel, And because of language difference, it became the symbol of division, of tribal and ethnic distinctions. So, when the kingdom comes, and every knee bows, every tongue in Ireland will confess, in Ulster Scots, Jesus Christ is your Lord. And in Irish... She is a Christ, our and in English, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Maranatha, even so, come quickly. Lord Jesus. Let me lead you in prayer. I want to pray just now for those who are who are crying out in distress because They just cannot, they cannot forgive. And they love you, Lord, but it just hurts too much. Lord, I pray for this miracle of mercy to begin. Somehow, someway, in the hearts of those who are present tonight, that their hearts will be softened, that somehow they'll begin to feel some level of compassion towards those who have caused them such anger, outrage, and pain. Lord, we we come with all our brokenness and our inadequacy, and we want to do this. We really do want to have the mind of Christ. We desperately long for this country that we love. Whatever our culture, whatever our commitment, whether we are British, Irish, or Irish, Irish, or whatever combination of the same, Lord, we are all Irish. And we want your kingdom to come. And your rule to be manifest in this island, from Cork to Derry, from Galway to Dublin. Lord, cause your kingdom to come. Your will to be done in Ireland as it's done in heaven. Give us therefore the mind of Christ in order that we might engage in kenosis, servanthood and sacrifice. Hear our prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen.